to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. You won't be a bit surprised to hear that I'm speaking today on He is Risen. But what will surprise you is the scripture that that went on your newsletter today. If you look on the front of the newsletter, you'll find a scripture that comes from the book of Genesis, which, you know, this is a thousand years before what we call the story of the resurrection of Christ. Did you see it on your newsletter? It's It's something that Joseph said. Now, let's think about Joseph. A rich man's favorite son is sold into slavery. He's dragged off to another country, which is totally foreign to him. He's framed up for sexual misconduct, which he never does. He's thrown into jail, and even when he gets a chance to get out, that fails. So he stays in jail, and he stays in jail, and things are about as bad as they can get. And then later on, as you know, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt, a very powerful man. And when his father dies, his brothers are afraid that he will kill his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery. But what he says is this, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the savings of many lives. And you might think, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's got this to do with Easter. We have a word called redemption. And redemption means we take something that's bad and it becomes good. In fact, in this case, we take something that's terrible, that's grievous and shocking, and it becomes absolutely wonderful. And that is the message of Easter. The Bible is full of redemption stories where God turns evil into good and he makes something wonderful out of something terrible. There's Jacob the con man, isn't there, remember? Who ends up Jacob, the father, actually changes his name to Israel, the father of Israel. There's Rahab the pagan prostitute who becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ himself after a transformation, after redemption. There's David, the adulterer, the murderer, who is redeemed and turns into being what we now look back as the greatest pink king perhaps of all time. There's John Newton, the man who made his living by transporting slaves and later on wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And John Newton was a major player in the abolition of slavery in New Z- over the world and in New Zealand too. That's why slavery had to stop here. Somebody once asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, do you remember? Can anything good come out of Huntley? Oh, Huntley. People do, don't they? They do. You didn't. I didn't come out of Huntley. I came to Huntley, but I'm stuck here now. All right. What about Paul the Apostle? How are we doing there? There is a redeemer. What about Paul the Apostle? This guy was hell-bent on killing and imprisoning all the Christians he could find. He was the worst and most feared enemy of Christianity. And he turned around to become Paul, the great apostle, who wrote large chunks of the Bible and we look to as our example today. There is a redeemer. What about you and me? Could God redeem our nation? Could he redeem our government? Could he redeem our media? (laughs) There is a redeemer. Can God redeem Christmas? God could redeem Christmas. He can. There's been talk lately about how badly the church has done, how much wrong the church has done. And I know that. 
if you look back at the history of the church, the, his, the church sets out to help the poor and it goes wrong and it's not done right. And they pray for the sick and it goes wrong. And they handle money badly. The church has done that. And the church has handled authority badly. But there is a redeemer. There is a redeemer. So we're not going to stop doing those things. We're not going to stop helping the poor. We're not going to ha- stop praying for the sick. We're not going to stop handling money. We're not going to stop respecting authority because it's gone wrong in the past. I'm sure there have been troubles with the car boot sale, but we press on and we keep going. I'm sure there have been trouble with healing rooms, but we press on because there is a redeemer. And if you look back, you'll find on just about everything we do that somebody mucked up or that somebody didn't get it quite right. There is a redeemer. We're still going to do those things, carefully remembering the lessons of the past. So why did Jesus go through all of this stuff. I asked that exactly one year ago, and the answers that you gave surprised me by how clear and how incisive they were. Do you remember, why did Jesus have to go through all this stuff? For us, for salvation. And somebody said last year, because he said he would. And you know what? For a personality like me, that's enough. That for a personality like me, that is enough because if somebody says they're going to do something, they better do it. This is the way people like me think. If I say I'll be there on Thursday, I better be there on Thursday. If I say I'll pay next week, I'd pay next week. If I say I'm going to marry you and no one else for the whole of my life, I better do it because Christians do what they say. That's why it's great to do business with Christians, I hope. All right? Now listen to these promises. This one comes from the book of Matthew. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said, look, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus says, this is going to happen. I'm going to do this And he has to do it, doesn't he? So we know we can trust him. Now, I should tell you that to the Jewish mind, each part of a day was counted as a day, all right? In the Jewish mind, Easter camp is five days long. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Oh, hang on. No, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It's five days long, even though not all of those days are full length. It started Friday night. It ends Monday late morning. But it's five days, and there's a five-day program. That's the Jewish mindset. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Was he raised to life on the third day? He was. Friday, he was laid to rest. Saturday went by. I'm using our names for the days. And on Sunday, the first day of the week, he was raised to life. But listen to this. This is from Matthew chapter 12. And it's a difficult one. Jesus replied, A wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's hard, isn't it? Some people will say, oh, look, when Jesus says three days and three nights, he just means I'll just be a few days. It's just his way of saying a couple of days, you know. But I don't believe that. He said three days and three nights. Now, for people like me, we think a lot about this. We go, oh, three days and three nights, huh? 
And so we're always looking out. Could that really have happened? Now, people have come up with all sorts of, of, of ideas about how Jesus was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But about a year ago, I read by a writer who said, we look at the three days and three nights, but we forget to look at the other part of the sentence. What was the heart of the earth? Or it could be said the heart of the land. Well, the word, which is pronounced in English, cardia, it's the heart, the mind, the character, the inner self, the will, the intention, the center, the seat and center of all physical and spiritual life. That's the heart. And what's the earth? Well, the earth is a guy, which is the earth, the soil, the land, region, country, or inhabitants of a region. Of a region. Now, that's a bit of different thinking, isn't it? So what is the heart of the earth? Is it a little cave that's on the side of a hill? This writer said no. Actually, that wasn't the heart of the earth. And to help you think about this, we're going to have a bit of a look at what the heart of the earth might be. In Deuteronomy 11, chapter 3, it talks about the signs God performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his whole country. What was the heart of Egypt? The heart of Egypt was the sacred Nile, which you can see at the top. It was its booming and prosperous agricultural industry. It was Pharaoh and the ruling classes, and it was the military might of Egypt, which was very, very tough. And when God decided he would strike at the heart of Egypt, he struck the Nile River, which turned to blood. He struck the agriculture, which was devastated by all sorts of things. He struck the Pharaoh himself and the royal family by the heir to the throne, dropping dead. And then in the end, of course, he overthrew the army of Pharaoh. You with me? The heart of Egypt, God worked on it. This is a new thought, so I'm going to give you another shot at it. All right? Some people, evil people, many years ago, decided they would attack the heart of America. What is the heart of America? The heart of America is its trade, wealth, and international commerce. It's the military might of the USA. And it's the political power of the US. That's the heart of America. So they hit the World Trade Center. They hit the Pentagon, which is the military headquarters of the USA. And the plane that didn't make it is believed to have been headed for either the White House or Camp David. Striking those three things which were the heart of American culture. So what was the heart of the land in Jesus' time? I put it to you that it was Jewish tradition and the religious power which resided in Jerusalem. I suggest to you that it was Roman military rule that ran the whole world. It was a great big Roman empire and the Jews, powerful as they were, were not allowed to kill Jesus because it was against the Roman law. They, they had to get permission. And it was the mob which held huge power and we've talked a bit about it. Never before had Jesus been subject to these things. Never. The religious authorities tried to arrest him. They tried to get him, but they couldn't because of the crowd. The Romans actually didn't bother Jesus, and, and many of them became followers of Jesus. And as for the mob, well, they never gave Jesus much trouble either. Uh, they tried to kill him one time, but he walked away. 
And another time, they actually tried to grab Jesus and make him the king. He walked away from that too. So Jesus wasn't subject to the mob. Jesus did what Jesus did. He didn't worry about the Pharisees or the Romans or even the crowd. In John 17, though, a difference happens. In John 17, Jesus prays a prayer and he says this, The hour has come. What he means is the hour has come when Jesus is to, about to be in the heart of the land. He's about to be in the heart of the Jewish, Roman, uh, Jewish and Roman authorities and the mob, which he's never been in before. When was Jesus tried and crucified? The Bible isn't clear on this. Some people say Friday, but there's not really enough time for all those things to happen in between. Some people say Thursday or Wednesday, which makes it easier to understand the three days and three nights, but there are some problems with that too. And one scholar says that the Last Supper was on Wednesday, April the 1st, AD 33. Now Matthew and Mark and Luke used what they called the Julian calendar, which was the Roman calendar of the time. Uh, on the other hand, John seems to give a different date for the Passover, but he was using the traditional Jewish calendar, which dated from when they were in Egypt. So somebody's looked at it and said, you know, there's no argument between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just that John was using a different uh, calendar. What about us? Which one do we use? We use the Gregorian calendar, which is different again, so it gets a little hard to work it out. Today I'm going to explore this idea that Jesus ate the Passover meal on Wednesday evening and was crucified at the traditional time on Friday, and that the trials and movements from place to place took from Wednesday night to Friday morning, which means there was enough time for it all to happen. As I always say, I invite you to consider this, and not to stone me if you disagree. So after the Last Supper, Jesus says, the hour has come. They go to the garden, Jesus prays, the disciples go to sleep, Peter makes promises, which he actually doesn't keep, Judas arrives with a big crowd. They're all armed, religious leaders, soldiers. John records Jesus telling them who he is. Who have you come for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, and all the soldiers fall over. That's still a Jesus we know, isn't it? That sounds about right. And then Peter pulls his sword out, and he chops someone's ear off, Malthus. And Jesus heals the ear. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like the Jesus we know. But that's it, the switch now. No more miracles. Jesus tells Peter off, and now Jesus is in the heart of the land. He's subject to the world and its systems. Jesus is now subject to the mob, to the religious authorities and to the Roman soldiers who he has never been subject to before. So they go to the high priest's house. There are many charges against Jesus, but none of the witnesses agree. Matthew says that finally two witnesses did agree, but John says even they didn't quite get their story quite right. So they could not convict Jesus because no two witnesses exactly agreed. Jesus was offered the chance to defend himself, and he doesn't take it. But then he does speak. Jesus is asked if he's the Son of God, and he says, you said it, knowing that those words will condemn him. You see, he could have quit. He didn't have to say that. Now it's morning. The first night is over, and Jesus is still in the heart of the earth with its systems and its power structures. It's never happened before. They bind Jesus. They send him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate knows he's innocent, and they're just jealous, and he offers to free him. He says, well, I've got two prisoners, Jesus Barabbas, the robber, or Jesus, the one who's called the Messiah. Which one do you want me to free? 
And they say, let Barabbas go. Let Jesus Barabbas go. And he says, what about this Jesus? Crucify him, they yell. Mob rules, eh? Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he's scared of the crowd. Just like we're learning to be in New Zealand nowadays. I've heard sermons which have made very much of the fact that the mob who welcomed Jesus a week ago are now turned against him. I'm not sure that that's right. Have you ever been down to Hamilton when it's school holidays in the middle of the day? Moms and dads and kids, it's fun, isn't it? Have you ever been to Hamilton at 2 a.m. on Friday or on Saturday morning? I have. I was the only one not asked for ID at the, at the uh, door of the nightclub. You want to see my ID? No, it's all right, mate. But, but I'll tell you, I, I, I was a sober driver, okay? But the point I'm making is the crowd was very different. The crowd that turns out to welcome Jesus, the mums, the dads, the kids, the grandmas and everybody else waving pine branches, might not have been the crowd that was there in the middle of the night. Might not have been the same people. Something to think about. So what happens? Jesus is sent to Herod, Herod, the Jewish king. The Jewish king sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate washes his hands in public. I'm innocent of this man's blood. And the mob calls a curse on themselves. His blood is on us and on our children. They call a curse on themselves, saying we will be guilty for the death of Jesus. And what a terrible price that nation paid for that promise. You see, the Romans despised the mob, and they despised the religious leaders. The religious leaders despised the mob and the Romans. How could they ever work together? But this day they did. And Luke records that this day, Pilate and Herod became friends. Jesus was stripped of his clothes. He was whipped. He was mocked by the Roman soldiers. And then they put his own clothes back on him. He went off to be crucified, carrying his cross as he had to do. But he'd been whipped so badly that he fell down. And he fell down again. And they got a man there called Simon to carry the cross for him. What a life-changing experience. When they got to Golgotha, Jesus was offered a pain-killing drug. But he said no. And then they laid him down on the ground and they tied him to a cross. They banged nails into his hands only to hurt because the nails couldn't hold you on the cross. They wouldn't be strong enough or your hands wouldn't be strong enough. The nails were just to hurt. They banged nails into his feet and then they took the cross and they put it up in the hole. Bang! Ah! And from now on, Jesus can only stay alive and the people with him by using the nails in his feet to push up and take a breath before he goes back down and hangs on his hands. People who are crucified suffocated. So here we have it. The king of the universe is naked, hanging up, fighting for every breath. And at his feet, soldiers are gambling to see who gets the beautiful tunic that he was wearing that was carefully woven in one piece. The tunic that Jewish mothers handmade for their sons as a leaving home present. And watching all this is the mother. Remember I said that it's redemption when something absolutely terrible turns into something wonderful. It doesn't get more terrible than this, does it? The passers by mock. I thought you meant to be the king of Israel. Come on down off the cross then. Then we'll believe in you. Why don't you save yourself? You said you could save us. He's right in the heart of the land. Jesus is right in the middle of that power system, that evil system that controls the world. 
It was the day of preparation. And all over Israel, lambs are being slaughtered. They are being slaughtered because it's going to be the Passover meal tonight. And hanging on the cross, our Passover lamb is dying as a sacrifice for every one of us. No other lamb will ever need to be killed because the lamb of God today is being killed at the same time as all the others. I've asked you to consider this, remember. And then it gets dark and Jesus cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? See, God had never forsaken Jesus, never. But he's all on his own in the power grip of the world and God isn't even with him, it seems. He cried out, he yielded his spirit. And one writer said it, he said, Father, into your hands I yield my spirit. And when you yield your spirit, your life leaves you. Have you been there when somebody has actually passed away? Have you seen that? They're there and then they're not. And scientists tell us that at that very moment, the body of the person loses a small amount of weight. Something leaves when somebody uh, yields up their spirit. The temple curtain, which was amazing, it was as thick probably as this wall. It was made of many, many layers and it ripped to pieces. We couldn't rip it, but it tore from the top. Who busted that curtain that day? God himself busted the curtain, ripped it apart so that this curtain that kept everyone out of the inner part of the temple was broken. God says, this was dividing me from people, but it's not now. Rip, come on in, everybody. Graves were opened. People got out of them and walked around. This was a freaky time. And Roman soldier, tough Roman soldier, Captain looked, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus is taken to a burial cave. There's a big stone rolled over it. Two nights and two days have passed with Jesus in the heart of the earth. They seem to have beaten him. The religious leaders, though, are still worried. Jesus is dead. He's in the cave. The stone's there. He's not going to bother you, but the religious leaders are still worried. Why? Because they, I bet they were really worried he'd rise again. But what they say is, oh, we're worried because it's, he said he's going to rise again. So maybe his disciples will, will steal the body and then it'll look like he's risen and we'll look stupid. So they say, uh, Romans, can we ask some help? So there's a Roman guard put in front. They seal the stone with a big sealing, whatever they do. And then the Roman guard stand at the front. Would you like to be a Roman guard? If you're on guard and one of you goes to sleep, then the whole lot of you are killed for punishment because you shouldn't have let your mate go to sleep. All right, so the Romans are awake. They're watching out, being careful. No one comes to steal the body. A third night goes by. A third day. The Sabbath is finished and three days and three nights in the heart of the earth are finished too. Matthew 28 says this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled away the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards trembled in fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. 
See, I've told you. So they hurried away from the tomb in fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came to him, they grasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Do not be afraid, said Jesus. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. What will the soldiers do? They're dead. The bird has flown. The seal is broken. What would you do if you were the soldiers? Go tell your boss? They didn't. They drew. They, they ran off to see the, the religious leaders. Romans, imagine that. Told them what had happened. Blah, we tried to do our best. But blah, blah, blah. So the religious leaders said, is that right? Then Jesus is the son of God. We'll worship him. No, they didn't. They go, oh man, what are we going to say? So the religious leaders came up with a story. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And after the chief priests had met with the elders and formed a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and instructed them, you are to say, his disciples came in the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Do you think that's very likely? I don't either. And if this report reaches the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the guards took the money and did as they were instructed, and this account has been circulated among the Jews to this very day. Now think about it, okay? Spent the, so the disciples spent the rest of their life telling everyone Jesus was risen. And they lost their lives because most disciples were killed for being Christians. Would somebody give their life for a lie? That they might, but would somebody give their life for a lie that they knew was a lie? No way. The disciples are going to be killed. All they have to say is, all right, we stole the body, okay, let me down. But they didn't. They were so sure that Jesus was alive. Listen to some of the things that happened over the next few days. Luke says two men were on a road and Jesus started walking with them. Jesus appeared with his friends while they were in a locked room and he started eating with them. By the way, the reason he did that was because ghosts don't eat in case you're ever curious. You want to know if you're meeting a ghost? Ask them to eat something. Well, it's handy, isn't it? You come to church to learn useful stuff. John says Peter went into the cave himself. Peter went into the cave, and there were the grave clothes folded up with the hat, the hat piece sort of there like that. And I couldn't find a picture to show you because they all show the clothes kind of either chucked out all over the floor or sort of neatly folded up like you fold the linen. But I don't believe it was like that. The Bible seems to say that the clothes and Jesus are there and just suddenly, whoop, he's gone, and the clothes just kind of go flop because there's nothing in them. But I can't find a picture anywhere of that. There we are, you see. Jesus met Mary in the garden. This is the beautiful story that John talks about. Then there's the famous story of doubting Thomas. He says, oh, I won't believe Jesus alive till I see it myself. I even want to put my fingers in the nail holes. Whoa, that's a hard man, Thomas. But a week later, Jesus says, come on then, come on. And he goes, oh, no, I didn't mean it. But he does. See, Thomas. What about those fishermen? They're fishing, and some dude from the shore goes, hey, how's it going? Catching any fish? And then they realize it's Jesus. He's made breakfast for them. And they start eating again. And then that same day, he reconciles with Simon. Simon Peter, who said three times, I don't even know him. Shut up. I don't even know that man. And Jesus says, hey, can we get back together again? Can we reconcile? All of these things. How does Matthew traditionally end his telling of the story of Jesus? Like this. Meanwhile, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubt it. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those words have been called the Great Commission. I believe that Jesus kept his promise exactly, keeping the sign of the prophet Jonah. Why does it matter? There's a man called Amir Tsafati, and he says this. He said, as Christians, he talks about our insurance. Now, English is his second language. I think assurance would be a better word to use. But what he says is, if we look into the future and wonder if God is going to do the things that he says he's going to do, then we look back into the past and we say, did he do the things that he said he would do in the past? Did he? When we read about the future, Jesus makes some amazing promises. Some of them seem almost impossible. They're hard to believe. He's prepared a place for each of us where he is. He's coming back. Any sacrifice we make for him will be richly rewarded. Israel will be restored to him, redeemed. There will be world peace. We will be resurrected and live forever. How can we believe these promises? by looking back at how he kept his promises in the past. Today we looked at a man who said he would be totally in the power of earthly authorities, that he'd be killed by his enemies, that he would be dead for days, and then he would come back to life. And he did all those things. Do you think he's able to keep his other promises? I do. Which is why I surprised you all last year, at the same time, by having us finish this service by singing Joy to the World, that great song of Jesus' second coming. Because the resurrection of Christ is a powerful reminder that he'll be back. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.